I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this episode, we chat to out-of-this-world researcher, Professor Tamara Davis. The universe is Tamara's world. As an astrophysicist, she's exploring the elusive dark energy that's accelerating the universe. Outside of research, Tamara keeps her feet on the ground by playing a competitive game that involves flying objects. So, Tam, thank you so much for joining us today. Just to talk a little bit about your experience as a woman in science and some of the important lessons that you've learned throughout your career. So maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about your background. Where did you go to university? Where did you train? How did you end up here? Cool. Well, I had an awesome, fun time doing my undergrad at University of New South Wales down in Sydney. I was a Sydney cider growing up, hung out a lot on the beach and was a surf club girl and that kind of thing. Did my both my undergraduate and my PhD at UNSW. I actually did a, a double degree in both science and arts. So I did physics and philosophy to start myself off. I did science and arts too. It's yeah. underrated as a degree. It's good. Like people ask, often would say, hold on, philosophy and physics, aren't those two very different? I'm like, well, in my physics, doing astrophysics, I'm studying the beginning of the universe. I'm studying like some quite philosophical questions about the origins of humans, the origins of life. And it, and it actually does align quite well, quite apart from all the ethical considerations that you go, go in when you just study philosophy as well. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, to all those people who doubt the value of a double degree in, in science and arts, behold the evidence. <laughs> yes. It was, very, it was an excellent way to kick off. And so that led into I had to figure out what I wanted to do for a PhD. And there was this really exciting project that was about cosmology. And it was asking, can the universe expand faster than the speed of light? And everybody knows that nothing can go faster than the speed of light because that's one of the limitations of physics. But it turns out that space is an exception to that rule and it, it can actually go faster than the speed of light, which has some interesting consequences about what we can see in the universe. And that just laid a really fantastic foundation for a sort of really strong theory for everything I've gone on to do since then. And so where did you do your postdocs then and, and your additional training? So my first postdoc I got at the Australian National University that was uh, I got that in a really fun way because I was down at a conference in Canberra and I was really engaged in the conference and asking lots of questions and that kind of thing. And I must have been noticed a little bit because one of the profs at the end came up after me and said, hey, so you're finishing your PhD soon, right? What, what's happening after that? And he had a project that was looking at using exploding stars, supernovae, to trace the expansion of the universe and try and measure this thing that they'd just discovered, which was dark energy, something that's causing the expansion of the universe to speed up. And it's really, really bizarre because something out there has an anti-gravity sort of property. And so I ended up getting recruited onto that project, which was awesome, a really good uh, experience, and set me on the way, particularly because the the people that were that did made that discovery, uh, including the guy that I was chatting to at the conference, ended up winning the Nobel Prize for that. So that was a very good connection to make just from asking questions at a conference and having a beer at the barbecue afterwards. But certainly not the outcome you expected from that, no. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, so from there I went to University of Copenhagen and uh, worked at something a place called the Dark Cosmology Centre where I continued doing measurements of trying to understand what this dark energy could possibly be using measurements of these exploding stars. And then when uh, I was looking to move back to Australia, there was a really cool project being led at 
um, UQ, which was measuring the distribution of galaxies in the universe and using those as sort of a, a yardstick, a ruler, sort of like grid paper spread out over the universe to measure how much the universe has expanded in, in the past compared to how much is expanding now and use that to confirm the discovery that had been made by the supernova measurements. So it sounds like a lot of your decisions have been driven by scientific curiosity, but also been supported by a lot of great mentors throughout your career. Would you say that's fair? Absolutely. The mentors that I've had have been absolutely amazing from my high school teachers um, all the way through my um, PhD supervisors and the mentors I've had as postdocs, as well as my family, of course, who were always super supportive as a kid um, and got me out doing lots of things. But I've had some outs- absolutely outstanding mentors who um, people like uh, Charlie Lineweaver and Paul Davies who were helping me out a lot during my PhD and Brian Schmidt who was the one who employed me as that first postdoc. He, he had a really strong impact and was just um, very, very supportive for everything I was doing after that. And the connections that I got to make by chatting to people. So these getting to work on these big international projects that were trying to measure something that no one's ever been able to figure out before and everyone coming together with sort of the same aim of figuring this this out. L- meeting all those people and then being able to have an impact in those big collaborations and getting noticed really then helped pave my way into future jobs and also future projects that I could then work on and start leading myself when I was no longer the person who was sort of being employed to do stuff on a pre-assigned project and I had to actually figure out what projects to lead myself. So how do you now approach mentoring as a, as a senior scientist and mentoring the next generation? It's one of the funnest parts of my job to get to watch people grow from a junior scientist or an undergrad student. So I've now been able to teach people from first year physics all the way through to doing their PhDs and moving on to postdocs and things, which has been absolutely fantastic and so much fun to watch. And it's I, I approach it from the point of view of thinking, always thinking about what they what benefits them, what they need to learn, what they're interested in and what their aims are. Because some people will be aiming to stay in academia and go do research. Some people will be aiming to go out into industry. Some people would like to do more theory. Some people want to do computing stuff. So you, you sort of design your projects and things related to what they, they would like to do. But then it's also really important to pay attention to the things that the things that I guess some of the things that I did instinctively that I didn't realize were really good ideas and make sure that they're doing the same things from going out and giving public talks, which I was jaw-shakingly terrified of doing as a student, but then went out and did enough talks to amateur astronomy societies and school groups and things like that, that it gave me confidence and presentation skills to do the same thing at conferences and in seminars and professional settings that I would have been very, very nervous to speak at previously, that all of this speaking I'd been doing about astronomy in other realms all came together and helped me out. So things like that and making sure they're taking on leadership roles in student groups and things like that so that they have different, all of the different aspects because it's absolutely necessary that you're an outstanding scientist or um, very, very competent at what you do. But that's also not enough. You have to have all of those communication skills and the leadership skills as well. And you don't necessarily learn those by sitting and studying your books. I 100% agree. I think our role as scientists in the community has changed a lot over time and what's expected of us has changed. When you do your community engagement events, how do you find that's perceived by both the scientific community and the broader local community? I think it's 
perceived very well, like it's a very positive thing to do. Early on, it, there was a bit of a, oh, if you're doing media events, you're a bit of a showboat, like you're sort of like, you know, trying to show off a bit and that sort of thing. But I don't think that, I think that perception is not as strong anymore, or even if it is there. It's because there's such a value in having the public understand science. And I think one of the most important things that I will do in my career is not necessarily discovering dark energy or figuring out a quantum theory of gravity. It's probably getting the public to get enthusiastic about science and trust science. So when important decisions come up, like decisions on how we are going to address climate change and issues that have, have a scientific basis, how are we going to fight diseases that come up? Like how are we COVID. going to respond to a pandemic, perhaps? <laughs> um, I want the public to enthusiastically embrace the scientific responses to those things rather than fear-mongering or false news that comes up. So I, I think that is actually one of the most important roles that a scientist can have. I think that's so true. And as you say, it's just becoming more and more important in our society as time goes on. I think one of the really interesting things that strikes me about your story is that you have moved around a little bit and you've experienced working in lots of different environments. How do you sort of make the decision about whether you go for the big prestigious location where all all the research in the field is done or a smaller area where you have perhaps more of a chance to make a name for yourself and really establish a niche? That's really difficult. I have... I've sort of followed my nose and done the thing that excited me the most, no matter whether it was the thing that was more prestigious or not. So there have been times where I specifically chose to go to the less prestigious place or to do the less prestigious project because that was the one that I thought was really exciting. And that actually has served me quite well because it meant that some of the things that I saw as exciting were were things that just hadn't generally been perceived yet as being the exciting thing to do and have grown over time and uh, have been something that I've then been able to help grow and lead. And choosing the smaller thing sometimes ended up being really beneficial for me. It, It gave me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I was a smaller fish in a big pond, uh, if you know what I mean. But yeah, I generally just do the thing that I've got two rules. I do the thing that excites me, but also if I have a a choice and I'm not sure and I'm trying to choose between two things, one of which I know about and I know what to expect and the other one is a bit of a mystery, I go for the mystery. Keep life interesting. (laughs) Exactly. I like it. I like it. Now, as a a woman in physics, physics is one of those areas where women are still very underrepresented. How do you think that it has changed over time in your experience in physics? And how do you think that the questions of diversity and equity are now being addressed? Early on in my career, I had no perception of there being any bias or anything like that. I remember someone when I was in second year university, one of my parents' friends said, oh, you're doing physics. Isn't that weird for a girl? And I was like, no, that's that's normal for a girl, right? And then I, I went, that it spurred me to go back to class. And I looked around and in the class, there was 40 guys and six girls. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, so maybe that is a bit unbalanced. But I was just sort of a bit, a bit oblivious to it and hadn't noticed. And then as time went on, and I saw I went to some women in physics conferences and stuff, you can see the stats, and there's clearly biases. And there's things that the, the unconscious biases are one thing where if a female's name is on a resume, then it gets ranked less highly than if a male's name is on exactly the same resume. And statistical studies that they've done to show that there are these little disadvantages along the way that accumulatively make up a big difference when you're trying to you look across a career. 
but there is a huge amount of attention on that now. There was some attention on it early in, so I've finished my PhD in 2004, and there was some attention on this topic back then. But in the last decade or so, it's really ramped up so that people are trying to take into account their their own biases and whatever barriers might be in, um, in way of um, not only females in physics, but other underrepresented minorities in the, in the field. And so there's a lot of attention on that at the moment and not a lot of support. Certainly from my perspective, I've never felt anything but absolutely enthusiastic encouragement from all of my colleagues, both male and female, and it's been a really fun place for me to be. And do you think that change is is palpable for the next generation? Do you see uh, younger female scientists coming through now that perhaps feel more self-confident and feel like they have earned a position at the table, so to speak? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's one of the differences actually might be even more so on the male side where the males see the females as equal so that it's no longer a weird thing to have a female in your class and that kind of thing or it's not it's not a the disparity is not that obvious and that helps everybody because you come in and you can get all of the knowledge from everybody who's perceived equally and i think the the perception across the board it's not just that females have the same stereotypes in their male in their heads as males do typically and so it's sort of slowly changing all all around there was i had a funny conversation with one of my colleagues in Denmark, who was one of the very eminent professors, sort of elder male statesman type of person, and he, we, the Dark Cosmology Center had in, had hired a, a lot of female postdocs and things. And his comment to me was, "Wow, do you know what? It's fantastic that you and the others have really shown that you actually can hire females without decreasing the quality." And this was like, so I, I laughed because it was like a backhanded compliment because he. he I, I just turned to him and said, oh, I didn't realise that that was something that needed to be proven, mm. to be shown. But clearly it did. And I think that part is sort of done now, hopefully. Yeah. So still some still some hurdles to, to overcome, but looking bright for the future, perhaps. Exactly. And so I think one of the things that we'll see as a, as a theme throughout this Women in Science theories is that all the women we're interviewing are not only fantastic scientists in and of themselves, but they also have unique skills outside of the lab. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your achievements as a sports person? <laughs> this was something that my when I was like a young student in grade three or something, my parents were asking my teachers, oh, she's doing very good at like all the maths and stuff. Should, should we bump her up a grade or something? And the teacher was like, no, she's very like I was very quiet. I think I was quite quiet and socially awkward. And she's like, no, she's going to learn so much more from her peers then she would gain by going up a grade that you should get her to go out and do as much sport as she can, go and socialise, play music, do all of these other things. And so my parents just enrolled me in everything. So I did swimming and I did water polo, I did netball, I did surf lifesaving, I was a skier, I did gymnastics. And so I, I've competed at a, a regional or above, like a, a state or above level in like six different sports. And the latest one that I've done is ultimate frisbee the obscure sport of ultimate frisbee, which is a team sport that you play with a frisbee, seven aside on like a rugby field. Um, and that one, I've, I ended up 
representing Australia and captaining Australia at World Championships. So, so just in case anyone wasn't intimidated by all your scientific <laughs> achievements, now we can be intimidated by your ultimate Frisbee achievements. <laughs> all right. So we want to sort of finish this off by just doing a few quick fire questions, if you'd be willing to indulge us. Uh-huh. The first is really, can you tell us which woman or women have inspired you or been the biggest influence in your life? I would say definitely for me, my mum and my grandparents, because they were all real go-getters. They were off leading things, even though they weren't necessarily always working. They were helping out in the companies or they were doing volunteer work or they were running things at schools. And I learnt so much from them and watching their confidence and leadership in their realms that I attribute a lot to my female ancestors, I guess. Sounds like some incredible women. The second quick fire question I would like to pose to you is really really about how you see the challenges that women face today and how do these compare to the challenges that women faced, say, 20 years ago in the professional workplace? Well, I think things have definitely improved. There's been so much attention to the fact that there were biases and things in the past that we're definitely in a better place now than we were. It's It's a fantastic time to be a female in STEM. But the we should remember that the the barriers and the biases do still exist and we really need active attention to change things. I saw there's a famous photo of a physics conference about 100 years ago where it had people like Einstein and Bohr and lots of these famous people and Marie Curie was the one female amongst the 21 people in this photo, which means it was about 5% female. Fast forward 100 years and there's a photo... For to basically take any photo of any maths conference that you like, there's a surprisingly almost a similar proportion with only like 5 or 10% female in a lot of these, these photos. And you realise that you can't just wait for generational change. You actually have to take action to make the changes that you want. And I think that's being done at the moment. And that's why we've been able to see so much progress. So be the change you want to see in the world. Exactly. And finally... What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received or what would you tell yourself um, 15 years ago when you were busy doing gym and frisbee and and everything else? What piece of advice would you give your younger self? I think the best piece of advice is don't focus too far ahead. Don't do something now because you think it's going to get you something in the future if you're not enjoying what you're doing now. Make sure that the thing that you're doing now is something that excites you and Uh, don't stress too much about the ultimate future of it because if you're enjoying it now, it's not a waste of time. And that's probably the best piece of advice that I've received. And I think that's the perfect place to leave this interview. So thank you so much for your time and all your wise words of wisdom. And we'll look out for you on the ultimate Frisbee court, I guess. Field. 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 (laughs) There we go. Field. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, that's all for this episode of Women in Science. In our next episode, we'll meet immunologist Professor Gabrielle Bells, who originally trained in veterinary medicine before discovering a passion for viruses. This podcast was produced by Dr. Marluce Decker, Dr. Marina Fortes, Belinda McDougall and Matt Taylor. Technical production was by Daniel Seed. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you subscribe or like wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and thanks for listening.